you in heaven. Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Death is beaten, you have rescued me. Sing it out, Jesus is alive. Empty cross, empty grave. Life eternal, you have won the day. Shout it out, Jesus is alive. He's alive. stand in that place free at last meet you face to face I am yours Jesus you are mine and this joy perfect peace earthly pain will finally we'll see celebrate Jesus is alive he's alive
has changed us. Amen.
from you. Every good good gift comes from above, Lord God. Lord, be with us now as we open your word, Lord. Open our heart, Lord, to receive all that you have prepared for us. In Jesus' name, amen.
How's everybody today? Good? We're going to be taking a look at the book of Judges. Journey, the journey that we've been No, it's all right. Um, we're going to pick up about halfway through chapter 11. Let me just review where we've been. We've been talking about a guy named Jephthah. A judge, and as we look at the book of Judges, remember this. Oh, wow. Woohoo! I'm okay now? So the book of Judges basically could be called the book of heroes. The Hebrew word for judge and our concept of hero is the same thing. It's a deliverer that God raises up to deliver his people. And as we take a look at what God's doing in the book of Judges and what's going on in the lives of the people, I'm okay. Thank you, though. What's going on in the lives of the people is this. The people are going through a cycle, a cycle where where rest leads them to rebellion, where rebellion leads them to to being placed underneath the, the control of someone else. God moves with retribution and brings judgment. They cry out in revival or in repentance to the Lord, and the Lord sends a deliverer to set them free, and the whole cycle starts again, over and over and over again. And as we look and as we study the book of Judges, here's the problem. And this is the problem in a believer's life that mirrors that. The problem is, in those days, there was no king in Israel. And everyone did what was right in his own heart. And the problem in a believer's life, when a believer has that kind of an experience with God, where, where you're going great guns and crash and burning, going great guns and crash and burning, moving into revival or into repentance. I'm not saying we don't fall and we don't stumble. But when that's it, this roller coaster existence, it's because there is no God or there is no king over your heart. There's one thing to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I promise you, it's something different when you behave as though he's your king. When you place yourself as someone in submission to him. When you take the word that God gives us and you stop making excuses for what the word says. And you begin to say, no, I need to take the word of God and apply it to my life. And where me and the word of God differ, guess who's wrong? I am. It's me. And rather than making excuses or doing what I think is right in my own heart, I'm to do what the Lord Jesus Christ told me to do. Oh, well, how do we know what Jesus wants us to do? Listen, the greatest teaching ever taught on the planet Earth is Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. It's Jesus laying out the ethics of his kingdom The character of those who are his subjects. The way they ought to live their life. I'm not saying we perfectly measure up, none of us do. But if you want to know, what is it that Jesus wants from me? How does he want me to walk? How does he want me to behave? How should I be toward my brother? Man, we don't have to go very far. We can read those three chapters, focus in on what Jesus is saying and saying, Listen, if I'm going to live as though the Lord Jesus Christ is my king, God bless you. If I'm going to live that way, then I've got to say, listen, 
I, I have to put myself under submission to that. I can't say there is no king over my heart. I can't say that I make my own decisions if Jesus is my king. That was a problem in Judges. And every time the people went into a time of bondage, God sent a hero. He sent a hero. Now, sometimes it was a hero over the whole nation. Sometimes it was a hero over a localized part. Like we're studying in Jephthah. Jephthah, he was the leader over Gilead, which is on the eastern side of the Jordan River, where Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh stopped. Remember when they were coming into the Promised Land? They didn't want to come across the river. They wanted to stay over there. Well, that's where Jephthah is. And you, yeah, that's how they were. And when you look at Jephthah, when you look at him, don't forget this. Who was he? He was the son of Gilead, who was a Jew, and a whore, who was a Gentile. When he was born, when his father died, his brothers threw him out. And they said, we don't want you around us. Get out of here. You're worthless. You're half-breed. You're whatever. Who knows what they called him? And they cast him out. And so he went and dwelt far to the, to the north from that area. And the Bible says that, that uh, men of a low stature came to him. Remember we talked about, just like David. Remember when David ran away from Saul and he hid in Gedi? And he lived in the caves? The Bible says other men that were in debt, who were castaways, who were thrown off, that nobody wanted, they came to David. Well, the same is true about Jephthah. Nobody wanted him. The same is true about Jesus, by the way, isn't it? What was the biggest complaint when Jesus came from the Pharisees? When the Pharisees looked and said, You know, we got a problem with you, Jesus, because you're always hanging out with who? Sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes. What's wrong with you? You shouldn't be with those people. But Jesus said, I came to the sick. Now, here's what you need to understand. When Jesus said, I came to the sick, he wasn't saying the Pharisees weren't sick. But you and I know very well. That if you don't think you're sick and you don't go to the doctor, you're not going to be made well. Right? If you don't acknowledge that there's a problem and I just ignore it, that doesn't make the problem go away. The Pharisees and the scribes, they saw themselves as holy above. Jesus said, I didn't come for you. You don't even know you need a Savior. I came to the outcast. He touched the leper, right? Nobody touched the leper. He told the the centurion, who's a Gentile, Jesus said to him, I'll come to your house. Jews never went to a Gentile's house, ever. But Jesus said, I'll come. Remember the centurion said, oh, you don't have to come. All you have to do is speak the word. And my servant will be made well. Peter's mother-in-law, right? We studied on Sunday. Peter's mother-in-law was sick. Nobody cared about women then. It didn't matter. She was just a little better than a servant. But Jesus, the Bible says, seeing her sick, he touched her. And the word for touched her means he went over and gently just stroked her hand. And as he touched her hand, she was well. And she rose up and served him. Jesus came to the outcast. Jesus came to the sinner. Remember when Jesus was at Simon the Pharisee's house and Simon didn't greet him at the door. Simon didn't get anybody to help wash his feet or give him a basin of water. Simon didn't give him the common courtesies of the day because Simon felt like he's pretty good. And if you felt like your station in life was above someone else, you didn't do those things for them. We, so we do the same stuff today, right? Sure we do. We, just, we, just, we, we call it different things. 
We do the same stuff. So Jesus is there sitting at the table eating, and this woman comes in, and obviously an, a woman of ill repute. Most commentators say that it's Mary Magdalene, out of whom Jesus cast seven demons, a woman that everybody had cast off, that people said was worthless. Yet Jesus reached out and touched her life. And here she comes where Simon is eating, and Jesus is there gathering, and she's weeping. And as she's weeping, her tears hit his feet. And as her tears hit his feet, when they sat at the table, they sat leaning forward with their feet behind them. That's how they sat around the table, not like in chairs like we do. His feet lounging, laying on one arm. That's how they ate. And she's behind him weeping, and her her tears land on his feet, and, and she notices how dirty they are. So she begins to wipe it with her hair. And Simon the Pharisee thinks, oh, this can't be a this can't be the Messiah. If he was the Messiah, he would know what kind of woman that is. And the Bible says Jesus answered him. Jesus did that a lot. He answered what people were thinking. Jesus answered him and told him a story. Remember the story? He said, Two men owed the king a great sum. One owed the king a million dollars. The other guy owed the king 20 bucks. Both of them were forgiven. Which one loved the king more? Simon the Pharisee said, I suppose the one who was forgiven much. And Jesus said, this woman, he goes on to say, you didn't give me the common courtesies when I came into your house. But this woman, to whom her sins are forgiven, she hasn't stopped. She hasn't stopped doing those things that made her put her in a humble station before God. Isn't that how we're supposed to walk before God? Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and what happens? He will lift you up, right? And so when we look at Jephthah, and when we look at David, and we look at the heroes of the Bible, that's something you're going to see a lot. You're going to see a lot, the, the outcast being called, anointed by God, and sent to deliver the people. We talked about Moses. The first time he presented himself to the people, they didn't want to follow him, right? They said they wanted to say, you killed an Egyptian, you're going to kill us too? So they reject him the first time, he goes down in the desert. The second time he comes, the people said, oh yeah, we'll follow you, Moses. Joseph, when he went to his brothers and his, and his mother and father and told them the dream about them all bowing down to him, they said, oh, what is wrong with you, kid? Don't you know, you can't possibly believe such a thing. And, and they ridiculed him. His brothers went so far as to sell him into slavery, right? The first time Joseph came to his family, he's rejected. The next time, what did they do? Every knee bowed. Every tongue confessed. What's that a picture of? Jesus Christ, the first time he came. Nobody wanted him, right? They said... When Pilate stood with Jesus and said, Behold your king. And they said, Crucify him. And Pilate said, Shall I crucify your king? They said, We have no king but Caesar. The time of the judges. In those days there was no king in Israel. And everyone did what was right in his own heart. And that's what's going on. Same with Jephthah. There he is. A man God can use mightily, but all the people could see was his pedigree. Right? Last I checked, none of us can control who we're born to, can we? As far as I know, we can't do nothing about that. But it doesn't stop people's prejudice, does it? It doesn't stop the attitude of the people. Well, we read how they had to come to Jephthah and ask Jephthah. They had an army mustered against the enemies of God. 
And so they went to Jephthah to look for a leader. And Jephthah said, why are you coming to me? Now you're coming to me? You know, I wasn't good enough for you before. And they said, oh, Jephthah, if you'll lead us, you can lead all this region. So Jephthah, as a result of his willingness to step out and be obedient to what God is going to lay on his heart, he's going to be the judge over Gilead. So he's going to be the judge over Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh over that portion uh, as we take a look. Now, as we look at the scripture, let's look at verse 29 of chapter 11. That's about where we left off last time. The most important thing about Jephthah is not his pedigree. It's not his schooling. It's not any of those things. The most important thing is what it says in verse 29. In verse 29, it says, Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead he advanced toward the people of Ammon. So the Ammonites have gathered for battle, and Jephthah gathers for battle, but the most important part of it is he's filled with the Spirit of God. Listen, no one can do what God is calling them to do without the Spirit of God being upon them. Listen, when we look in the, in the New Testament, as we study the move of the Spirit, when the Scripture is very plain, folks, when we give our heart to the Lord, the Holy Spirit comes upon us. In John chapter 20, before Jesus died on the cross, Jesus came to his disciples, and the Scripture says, he, or after he died on the cross, he breathed on them, and he said, Receive ye the Holy Spirit. Now, when Jesus was on the boat, and the waves and the wind was blowing, and he said, Peace be still, what happened? It was stopped, right? When the leper came to Jesus and said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And he said, I am willing. He was clean. When Jesus spoke, it didn't happen 10 months from now. It happened then. So when Jesus breathed on them and said, Receive you the Holy Spirit, they received the Holy Spirit. But then he told them to go into Jerusalem for what? He said, wait here for the outpouring. The, the word in the Greek is the word epi. It's the exact same word in the Hebrew used here, that the Holy Spirit was upon him. That phrase, upon, is that idea of empowering. It doesn't just mean within. It means you're so full within that it begins to flow without. It's just like seeing a pitcher full of water. That's the Holy Spirit in your life. When you see the Holy Spirit come upon, it's like pouring more water in. What happens? The water overflows. It begins to affect the surroundings. It begins to affect the, the table. It begins to affect the tablecloth. The exact same thing happens in the lives of the disciples. In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit, the Scripture says, like a rushing wind, comes upon them and empowers them to, to go out in ministry. Exact same thing is happening to Jephthah. The Holy Spirit comes upon him, fills him, empowers him, guides him, leads him. Folks, it doesn't have to be with a lot of fanfare and, and uh, fireworks and some kind of crazy show. It doesn't have to be. The Holy Spirit will work in your life supernaturally in the natural. Every one of us has experienced. I got brothers. I got brothers, family that are good, solid Baptist people who who don't believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And when we talk, I don't care what you call it. Call it whatever you want. 
I'm not willing to argue over the vernacular, the point. Every one of my brothers would say to me, you know what, the other day I was walking and, and the Holy Spirit just spoke to my heart that I needed to share something with somebody or I needed to pray with this person. Why do you think it's got to be something humongous, some fire shooting out the top of your head and some crazy thing happening? That's how the Holy Spirit works. I call that being baptized or having the Holy Spirit upon you. The Holy Spirit comes in you the moment you believe. The Holy Spirit empowers you for service. And that's what the Holy Spirit does in their life. Call it whatever you want. It's the same thing. And it's a dumb thing to argue over. It's the same deal. Holy Spirit moves. Holy Spirit's upon Jephthah. And he's going to go out and he's going to do what he couldn't do on his own. Because the Spirit is with him. Because the Spirit is upon him. And that's the way we want to walk our life. Now, in the Old Testament, they didn't have the benefit that you and I have. When Jesus came and died, you remember he told the disciples, it's good that I go. Because if I don't leave, the Holy Spirit can't come. Prior to Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection and ascension into heaven, the Holy Spirit did not come upon a group, a body of believers. He, He moved in the lives of people one at a time. But with the church... He comes upon the life of believers everywhere. Empowers the bride of Christ to do the things God wants him to do. Jesus paved the way for that to occur by giving unto you and I the righteousness that we cannot create on our own. A righteousness that God requires that we fall short of. Jesus Christ on the cross, God treated like he had lived a sinful life, just like you and I. He treated him like he would have treated us. So that after his resurrection, he could treat us as though we were his son. Through adoption, we become part of the family of God. We become kin, if you will, adopted into God's family. Accepted into the beloved. Chosen, predestined, all those great things that God does in our life. He's done those things so that he could welcome us in and empower us with his spirit to be whatever God's calling us to be. And it doesn't matter. If it's a janitor, then you still need to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to be a janitor for God. No matter what it is, you must be empowered by the Holy Spirit to be that whatever it is for God. A teacher, a construction worker, a contractor, doesn't matter. In order to do it, We've got to be living a life in submission to the Lord and into his spirit. In verse 30 it says, Now Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. So Jephthah is going to do what every one of us in this room has done. So before anybody starts saying Jephthah and his crazy vow, I'd be willing to say there's not one of us in this room that sometime or another in our life didn't tell God, If you do this, I'll do that. If you, Lord, if you, I know I've done it. I must have done it a hundred times in school. A hundred times in school. In school, I'd say, Lord, if I pass this test that I didn't study for, then I promise, whatever. You know, the, 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 the deals we make with the Lord, that's what Jephthah does. But here's the beauty of Jephthah. Here's what I want you to really focus on. A lot of people argue about what he does or what he doesn't do with it. I, I think that's immaterial. The point is... Jephthah keeps his word to God. 
See, God said to the children of Israel in the book of Leviticus, you don't have to make a vow. But if you make a vow, keep it. You and I, we make lots of excuses why we shouldn't have to keep a vow. Jephthah doesn't do that. He doesn't do it. That's how important serving his king was. Because you and I, a lot of times, you know, in the, in the book of Malachi, when the Lord's talking about the way that the children of Israel were giving in the, in the synagogues, in the churches, the Lord said, why do you give me the lame and the sick? Why don't you take that gift to your governor and see if he accepts it? And sometimes we forget about that. Some, oftentimes we give to God our leftovers, not even talking about money, time, whatever you want to plug in there. We give to God the effort we give to the Lord. We would not give to someone we respected. And to me, when I read Malachi, that's a, that's a harsh charge. And it's something that really says, man, I need to consider. Am I giving effort in my relationship with God like I would as though I feared the Lord, as though I respected God. Because if there's a human being on the planet that I would do more for than what I'm doing for the Lord, then I'm not living in the fear of God. I'm living in the fear of man. But Japha, he was he's living in the fear of God. Now it's 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 a silly deal that he doesn't need to make. Vows are not required. He wasn't required to give this vow. But giving it, he's going to keep his vow. He's going to hold his vow to the Lord. So it says, then, here's his vow in verse 31. Then it will be, whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me, when I return in peace from the people of Ammon, shall surely be the Lord's. And I will offer it up as a burnt offering. Now, there's some interesting things in the linguistics here. And I'm not going to try to tell you that the argument is over. And we'll, I'll tell you what the argument is in a minute. But the concept is, whatever comes out of my house first will be consecrated to the Lord. And the word and in Hebrew is the word wa. W-A-W is how you would spell it in, in English. And roughly how it's pronounced. And it can mean and or. It can mean either one, and, or, the word or. The concept that most people take from this, based on a lot of different reasons, is he says, whatever comes out of my house, I will consecrate to you, God. I'm going to give it to you. The word in uh, whatever comes out of my house is in the masculine sense. He's talking about a person. Whatever person comes out of my house, I will consecrate to you. And then the idea in the language is, or if it's not a person, I will offer it up as a burnt offering. To assume that Japheth is talking about offering a person as a burnt offering in a deal with God flies in the face of the law of God. And a lot of people say, well, Japheth was a, was a half-breed. He's just leaning into his Gentile heritage. Well, listen. In the chapter prior, Japheth makes an argument with the king of Ammon, reciting for him the history of Israel. How does he know the history of Israel? Where was the history of Israel written? It was written in the word of God. So he's reciting to him out of the word of God the things that God had done for the children of Israel. 
The concept is Jephthah knew enough about God's word to understand offering a person up as a burnt offering goes against what God's word says. Well, that's going to play into the matter in just a moment. Let's take a look. It says, so Jephthah advanced toward the people of Ammon to fight against them. And the Lord delivered them into his hands. Now, this is cool because Jephthah said this is how it would happen. Jephthah was a mighty man of valor. The Bible tells us so. He led his men well. He had lots of victories. But he said when they came and asked him to lead, the only way I'll have the victory is if God gives me the victory. So this Jephthah knows the Lord. Jephthah understands that that's where victory comes from. And here the Bible says that the Lord is going to give him, the Lord delivered them into his hands. In verse 33, And he defeated them from error as far as Minith, 20 cities, to Abel-Gurimim, and there was a very great slaughter. Thus the people of Ammon were subdued before the children of Israel. And when Jephthah came to his house at Mizpah, there was his daughter coming out to meet him with timbrels and dancing, and she was his only child. Beside her, he had neither son nor daughter. You remember the promise he made now? He comes back home. God gave him the victory. They whooped the Ammonites. And as he comes back home and as he's walking up to his house, he's thinking of his vow. The first thing out of his house is his daughter, his only child. The only hope of his name going forward. And he remembers the vow that he made to the Lord. The scripture is very clear to make sure that you and I understand this is his only child. And I think that's because they want us to realize, even though Jephthah swore to his, his hurt, he's going to fulfill his vow to God. Even though the promise he made God didn't work out in his best interest. He's going to fulfill his vow to the Lord. He's going to keep the promise that he gave. It says, And it came to pass when he saw her that he tore his clothes. And he said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. You are among those who trouble me, for I have given my word to the Lord, and I cannot go back on it. Have you ever felt like that? Because the attitude, I just want you to, to grasp the, the, the gravity of that. It, what I believe Jephthah does with his daughter, Scripture doesn't tell us, so people will argue about it from now to the end of time. So we won't waste too much time on it. But he's going to consecrate her to the Lord. She never has children, never gets married. She goes to the Lord, just like uh, um, other characters in Scripture that were consecrated to the Lord, fully given to him. Never married, they were part of, became part of the temple. No grandkids, no offspring, no children. Hey, I'm a grandpa. I like grandkids. I promise you, Jephthah was looking forward to him. Even more so, I'm sure his daughter was looking forward to being married and having a family. We don't understand today the importance they put on that then. The most important thing you could do was have a family, have children, raise, raise a family. That was the highest of the heights. To not have that was an incredible sacrifice. And here, Jephthah realizes through his vow, his, he has vowed a vow, and it's to his own hurt. 
It's not for him. It's not going to work out for him. It's not going to make him happy. But Jephthah wants to keep his vow. Because God matters to him more. I got I to check things in my life all the time. Maybe that's why God took the Harley away. I don't know. But I remember I sat right in here and told everybody, if God took the Harley, he can have it. And he heard me. And he took it. Well, it's okay. I hope in the choices I make and the things I say that I always, I always make sure that God is first. What does the Bible tell us in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33? Seek ye first what? The kingdom of God and what? His righteousness. And all these things that everybody else is worried about, they'll be added unto you. But first, what's first? The kingdom of God and his righteousness. In order to seek the kingdom of God first, who has to be the king? Well, Jesus has to be the king. The Lord has to be the king. That was the problem in Judges. We need to make sure that the Lord is in that place in our life, that he's our king. But listen, I want you to hear what his daughter says in verse 36. Because this is just as big a challenge for children as it is for parents. So she said to him, my father, if you have given your word to the Lord, do to me whatever has gone out of your mouth. Because the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the people of Ammon. His daughter said, and this affects her, right? It's a big deal. She said, Dad, she respected her dad, and she respected the Lord. Dad, whatever you said to the Lord, you have to do it. You have to do it. That's pretty incredible, isn't it? I think you learn a lot about the character of the man Jephthah by the character of his daughter. And I think you see a lot of the character in in Jephthah's daughter that you see in Isaac. Remember the story of Abraham and Isaac? And Abraham went to offer up his son. In Sunday school, we show pictures of Isaac being this little child. Somebody Abraham can manhandle if he needed to. But scripture, the word used is of a lad. And it could be, he could be as old as 33 years old when that sacrifice is given. That changes everything, doesn't it? If Isaac is 33, how does Abraham, who's over 100, put him on the altar? He has to get on willingly, just like Jesus got on the cross willingly, right? It becomes that picture, that picture of being willing, being willing to, to be and to do what God has for us. A picture of Jesus Christ offering himself freely for us so that he could pay the price for our sin, so that he could be made right. Jephthah's daughter has that same attitude. My father, you have to do whatever you promised the Lord. In verse 37, then she said to her father, let this thing be done for me. Let me alone for two months that I may go wander on the mountains and bewail my virginity, my friends and I. Now, so she asked, now, there's an interesting reason. And part of the reason why I believe she's consecrated in the temple is because she goes to bewail her virginity. She doesn't go to bewail her life. Nowhere does scripture tell us that she lost her life. We know that the scripture teaches that human sacrifice is an abomination to God. 
We know that Japheth is listed in Hebrews chapter 11 as one of the heroes of faith. All those pieces don't fit together. So she goes to bewail her virginity. She's never going to have children, never going to be married. She's, she's, in essence, God is going to become her husband, and she's going to live a life of service, consecrated wholly to the Lord. And so it says, he said to her, go. And she went her way for two months. And she went with her friends and bewailed her virginity on the mountains. And it was. So at the end of two months, she returned to her father. I love this phrase. And he carried out the vow with her, which he had vowed. Now, Bible doesn't tell us what he did. And men much smarter than I have spent a lifetime arguing about what he did. I'm not going to do it. I just like the fact that he kept his promise to God. He paid his vow. He did what he promised. That is so foreign to our society today. Let's just move from the realm of of the things that we've been talking about and take a step into the realm of politics. When is the last time somebody kept their vow? I don't know that it's ever happened. That someone's kept their promise. Jesus said it like this. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything more than that is from the evil one, he said. Anything beyond that, just keep your word. Jesus said, just keep your word. If you swear to your own hurt, pay what's owed doesn't matter it doesn't matter and i think there's a great picture as we take a look at this of him paying his vow and then what does it say he paid his vow she knew no man and it became a custom in israel that the daughters of israel went four days each year to lament the daughter of japhtha the gileadite that word lament literally is a word celebrate they would celebrate the consecration or the sacrifice that japhtha's daughter made the example that it was uh, to the other, to, with the other girls, that she was willing to be obedient to her father and submit herself to God, even though ultimately it cost her everything. And I think that's an important thing, oftentimes missing in our life. There's a man who felt called somewhere around the 1950s, Watchman Nee called to go to communist China, right? 1956, he was arrested. For preaching the gospel, which is illegal in communist China. He spent the last 16 years of his life in prison. He never got out. He died in that cell. Any time during those 16 years he was in prison, where he wasn't allowed to write, he wasn't allowed to do anything, he was, he was not given any of those things, he was treated very poorly. At any time during those 16 years, he could have recanted his faith and gone home. And Watchman Nee said, for the love of Jesus Christ, I die in prison. They wouldn't recant, even though he could have made his life easier. How does that kind of faith work in the life of a believer? Same way it worked with Jephthah. He's empowered by the Holy Spirit to do what God's called him to do. We might sit in here tonight and think, I don't know if I could do that. Or maybe we think, I know for sure I could do it. But the one thing's 
for sure. It's not by might nor by power, but by the Spirit, says the Lord. It's by His empowering that you're able, not by anything that we have, not by anything that we bring to the table. Well, as all this concludes, keep in mind two things. Jephthah would have had to take his daughter to Shiloh to offer as a sacrifice, right? Where were sacrifices given? At the tabernacle. Where's the tabernacle? In Shiloh. Where's Shiloh? In Ephraim. Why does any of that matter, Jackie? Because we're going to look at the next verse. It says in chapter 12, And the men of Ephraim gathered together, crossed over towards Zaphon, and said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the people of Ammon and didn't call us to go with you? We're going to burn down your house and you with fire. Right next to this verse, I have written, What a bunch of morons. But people act like that all the time. God gave a great victory, and all the Ephraimites, all the tribe of Ephraim can worry about is, hey, we weren't part of it. And so we're going to kill you? We're going to kill you, Jephthah? The judge, the called of God, filled with God's spirit? But isn't that how self-righteous people are? We're going to kill you because, you know, our name's not on the billboard. You know, I am so not into titles, and it's kind of foreign in a, in a lot of areas. We, we go to the jail. It's funny. We go to the jail um, a few times a year and teach for a month in the jail. We'll do a Bible study on Tuesday nights. And so we'll go down, and we're doing this, we're doing this Bible study. We're reaching out and, and trying to do some, some stuff with him. <clears throat> and as we're doing it, they want to know the people I'm bringing. They, they're saying, hey... What is the title? Because they have to have a certain title to come and teach. They have to have a certain title to be able to to stand before man and bring forth the word of God. Really? What was the title of the disciples? Fishermen. You remember what the Pharisees said? Hey, these guys are two things. Uneducated and they were what? With Jesus. That was their credentials. Some people are so into titles, into degrees. Where's your degree? Where'd you go to school? Hey, I'm not saying school's not important. I went to school. But I'm not into it. I don't care. I don't care if you got PhD after, before. You want the title of, you know, domestic, whatever they, what is the word for housewife? Domestic goddess? Who said that? Oh, man. (laughs) I don't know if you can say that in church. <clears throat> but the, <laughs> the idea, it's absolutely true. Where's Kathy? It's absolutely true. So, but the idea, some people are caught up in that. And that's how the Ephraimites were. They wanted a title. They wanted to be on the billboard. They wanted to go down. They didn't do any of the work. They didn't show up. But they want it. They want to make sure that they have theirs and they're willing to kill God's people as a result. And so... Jephthah has a few things to say to them. Now, remember Gideon, a few chapters ago, Gideon delivered the children of Israel. And Ephraim did the exact same thing. You guys didn't call us. And they're all in Gideon's face. And Gideon says to them, he, 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 he builds them up. He says, oh, you guys already have so much glory. And, you know, so the Lord did something else. But what are we to you? You guys are so great. And so the Ephraimites left and said, oh, yeah, that's right. We are great. But Jephthah's not going to do that. 
You know, Jephthah's had it to hear. Anybody ever been there? And so Jephthah's going to tell them the truth. So they give him this grief, and Jephthah said to them, My people and I were in great struggle with the people of Ammon. And when I called you, you didn't deliver me out of their hands. For 18 years, the Gileadites were under the control of the Ammonites, and Ephraim on the other side of the river never tried to help, never cared. Now that's their brothers. The half, that's the half tribe of Manasseh that's over there is, is direct descendants of Ephraim. Remember, Ephraim and Manasseh are brothers, the brothers of Joseph. So then he said, So when I saw that you would not deliver me, I took my life in my hands and crossed over against the people of Ammon, and the Lord delivered me, or delivered them into my hand. So why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? What are you doing here? God just delivered them into my hands. God has directed all this stuff. And whether or not that newspaper article had your name in it or not, who cares? If you're looking for glory or fame, you're in the wrong business. Because there's only one person in this business that gets the glory and the fame. And that is Jesus Christ. Period. Period. It's about Him. It's all about Him. It's all about the Lord. And with Jephthah, it was all about the Lord delivered me. Right? But with these guys, uh, we're going to burn your house down and kill you because you didn't, you know, our, our name wasn't there. We didn't get a brass plaque or whatever the deal is. So he says to them that Jephthah gathered together against all the men of Gilead and fought against Ephraim. And the men of Gilead defeated Ephraim. Because they said, you Gileadites are fugitives of Ephraim among the Ephraimites and among the Manassites. Remember I told you that they're part of the tribe of Manasseh? The half-tribe, remember, Reuben, Gad, the half-tribe of Manasseh are on the eastern side. That becomes Gilead. And they say to them, basically, oh, you guys are, you're, you're just fugitives. You should be in Ephraim anyway. So we're going to come conquer you and take over. Well, God wasn't into that. And Jephthah and the Gileadites beat the Ephraimites. But what are they doing? The brothers are fighting together. Let me ask you a question. When the body of Christ fights against itself, who bleeds? Every time. When the body of Christ fights against itself, it's Jesus who bleeds. And it's stupid. There's a whole world out there of people that need to know Jesus Christ. And we really don't need to be wasting our time fighting against each other or polishing our armor. Rather, I want to be in there with the guy with the raunchiest looking armor. Whatever, the guy the most dense. That's who I'm going with. What do you mean? Well, when I was in the Marine Corps, let me tell you what happens. When you hit the sand... And bullets are flying and things are going on. You're not looking for the guy that's all pretty and clean and got it all together and looked the best and had the best in his wall locker and he just knew how to pass all the inspections. Who cares? You don't want him. You know who you're looking for? Gunny. Why are you looking for Gunny? Because he's been there 20 times. And his face is scarred up and he's beat up and he doesn't move as good as he used to. But he's been there before. And that's the guy that you want to go with. 
You want to be in a spiritual battle with a brother or sister in Christ? You want the guy who's been in the battle before. Not the one who just stands around shining up his armor. Jephthah goes in the battle. The Ephraimites, they, uh, they have a bad day. They have a bad day and they get beat. In verse 5 it says, The Gileadites seized the fords of the Jordan before the Ephraimites arrived. And when any Ephraimite who escaped said, Let me cross over, the men of Gilead would ask him, Are you an Ephraimite? And if he said no, then they would say to him, Say, Shibboleth. Isn't that weird? Say, Shibboleth. And he would say, Sibboleth. See the difference? For he could not pronounce it right. And then they would take him and kill him at the fords of the Jordan, and fell, there fell at that time 42,000 Ephraimites. So how did they tell the Ephraimites from everybody else? They had an accent. They couldn't say Shibboleth. Now, you want a little uh, uh, test? Go home and look up Shibboleth. It's in the English dictionary. Because of this story, that word made it into the English for a test to tell whether or not something's true, something's valuable, something's worth it. Sibboleth. They couldn't pronounce the H. It'd be like saying, okay, we're looking for all the Texans. And before we let them cross the river, we're going to say to them, hey, before we let you cross, you have to say, you all. And they say, y'all. And you say, sorry, man, you're from Texas. You got to go. Same concept with the Ephraimites. It was the accent, their inability to, to say the, the way, speak the way the Gileadites. Not right or wrong, just different. Their inability to say, now, the good news is, no camera, it's not on the internet, and no Texan heard it. So it's okay. Don't panic. <laughs> Texas isn't coming. The idea is that there was difference in the way they spoke. And that's how, but listen, here's what I want you to gather. The leadership of the Ephraimites got 42,000 men killed. Because of their pride. Because of their just stupidity. Dumb. I don't understand it. All because they wanted their name exalted. Listen, it's God's name that gets exalted, period. Ever. Who cares about anything else? Who cares, you know, what happens? Somebody gets saved and they decide to go to a different church. Praise God. Praise the Lord, there's another brother in heaven. When we get there, we'll be able to hang out. It'll all be good. Down here, maybe we can't. Fine, that's okay. I'm okay with that. It's okay. I don't care who gets the credit. I don't care who's big. I don't care who's small. We're all in it the same, right? We're all in it the same, man. Let's, let's make a difference in this world for the kingdom of Jesus Christ. So the scripture goes on to tell us, Jephthah judged Israel six years, and Jephthah the Gileadite died. And was buried among the cities of Gilead. And that's it. That's the end of Jephthah's line. No kids. No grandkids. No posterity. Because he loved God more. There's this idea. This concept about what is it. What does it mean to love the Lord your God with all your heart soul, mind, and strength. Because really, isn't that what God wants from us? That's what the scripture tells us. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That means love Him more than your children. 
Love them more than your spouse. Love them more than your job. Jesus said it like this. You will either love one or hate the other. You cannot serve two masters. One or the other. We love God. The good news is when we love God, all that other stuff gets thrown in. But when we love something else, all that other stuff just passes through your hands like trying to hold water in two hands. Doesn't matter how tight you hold your fingers, the water's leaking. You wait long enough, it's all going to be gone. Jesus said, if you'll lose your life for my sake, what? You will find it. What's he mean? Man, when we make him first, we care that his name's exalted and not our own. There's no end to the glory that God will receive and the changes that will happen in our world. Japheth's world changed. The Ammonites were defeated. The Ammonites throughout Scripture become a picture of sin, the way that sin moves into people's lives, the way that sin changes things. And so it's an example of that sin being driven out of, out of their life, and they had peace. They had peace. Where do we find peace? In Jesus Christ. When he's in that rightful place in our life. Now there's three more judges listed at the end of that chapter. And you all know I don't go very fast through anything. And I don't want to just read the verse and say, well, this guy's name was that and that guy's name was that without being able to tell you something about him. And we don't have enough time to do it tonight. So we're going to take a break right there. But if you would just consider as we as we close out the service, as we focus on, on uh, just lifting up our voices in worship to the Lord, you need to ask the Lord that question. Are you first in my life? If I made a promise like that, would I keep it? Would I consecrate my son or daughter to the Lord? And that would be the end of my and her relationship together. It's pretty wild. It's pretty incredible. The good news is Jesus said, No man has lost wife or mother or brother in this life without receiving much more in the next. God will be a debtor to no man. Japha and his wife, when he died after six years, and when and when his daughter died at the end of her life, was that the end of the story? No. Here we are 2,000 years later, a little better. Still talking about it, right? Still talking about that sacrifice and that willingness to be faithful. And that's, a, that's something that we need to decide. Is that who we want to be? That faithful, that level of faithfulness. Maybe not making a crazy vow, but being that faithful. Why don't we go before the Lord and pray? Would you stand with me? Heavenly Father, Lord God, we do thank you for the opportunity we have to just come before you, Lord. We thank you for opportunity to study Japha and, God, just the way you moved in his life. Father, we pray, Lord God, that each of us would just come to a place, Lord Jesus, where we say, Man, I, I want to live like the heroes 
of the Bible. And the only difference between me and them is my willingness to submit myself wholly to you. The same spirit that was upon them is upon me. The same spirit that empowered them empowers me. The call may be different, and that's okay. I may be called to do something different, but the power is the same. That I might know you. The power of your resurrection. Being conformed to your death and the fellowship of your suffering. Lord, that's our prayer. That I might know you. Intimately. Live for you completely. Be focused on you and everything that I do. For whatever I do, I can do it as unto you. Lord God, we pray that your spirit would move in this place. And if we find ourselves in a place where that hasn't been the case, the the way to change is so simple. For your word declares that we confess our sin. You are faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, that your mercies are new every morning as far as the east is from the west. That's how far you have removed our transgressions from us. God, we just confess it and you forgive us and we begin again every day. When that sun comes up, it's a promise of hope that today will be the day I see my Lord and Savior That today will be the day I live wholly and completely for him. I'm not worried about yesterday. I'm not worried about tomorrow. It's what can I do today, right now. So God, empower your people. That we might make a difference in Buell, Filer, Castleford, Twin Falls. That we might change our world. By the power of your spirit. And we give you all the praise and the glory for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to close in a word of worship. We invite you to stay and worship with us. After that, we'll meet in the foyer and have a time of fellowship. I think I seen cake out there. And I did a little more than see it. I had one piece. (laughs) And it was pretty good. So I'll meet you around the cake. God bless you guys and go in peace. And I think I've seen cookies out there, but I think they're for me.